0: Support for this podcast is provided by HackerJob, a reverse marketplace that actively vets engineers. HackerJob flips the traditional model on its head, meaning companies apply to engineers versus candidates applying to jobs, with companies getting an 85% response rate to the candidates they reach out to, as well as exposure to tech talent that directly meets their organization's diversity objectives. After all, the ability to attract, hire, and retain tech talent from all backgrounds is critical to every organization's success. Companies such as S&P Global, Carmax, and Sensor Tower are all using HackerJob, so why not join them? Go to HackerJob.com/future to get your free 30-day trial today. That's HackerJob.com/future, and HackerJob is spelled H-A-C-K-A. J.O.B. There's been more of scientific discovery,
1: more of technical advancement and material progress in your lifetime and mine than in all the ages of history.
0: Hi there, this is Matt Alder. Welcome to episode 547 of the Recruiting Future podcast. It's been an extraordinary year for technology. We can all broadly agree that the effect of generative AI will be transformational for talent acquisition. But how can we separate the hype from the reality to know where to focus in the short term and how to plan for a much-changed future? With so much noise and minimal signal in the discussion about AI – I thought the best way to get a grip on everything was to talk to a genuine AI thought leader. My guest this week is John Crone, host of the Super Data Science podcast, best-selling author and chief data scientist at TA startup Nebula. John was on the show back in 2019 and he gave us a primer on AI that was so good people are still listening to it now. This time he's doing a deep dive into generative AI. Giving us some history, explaining the current reality, and outlining the radical potential for the future. This conversation was eye opening for me, and it's a compulsory listen for everyone who works in talent
1: acquisition. Hi, John, and welcome back to the podcast. Hey there, Matt. It is a treat to be back all these years later. I can't believe it's been so long.
0: (laughs) Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you back on the show. Could we start with you introducing yourself and telling everyone what you do?
1: Sure. So I'm John Crone. I'm the chief data scientist at a machine learning company called Nebula. And we are aiming to transform the future of HR tech, of recruiting, and ultimately of business in general. But you don't want to boil the ocean too quickly, do you? Um, and yeah, so I host Super Data Science. It's the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. We do about four million downloads a year, and uh, I wrote a best-selling book a few years ago called Deep Learning Illustrated. I think that's that was the impetus for me being on the show previously. So I think it was 2019 that I was on the Recruiting Future podcast, and yeah, we talked about deep learning and how that could transform. Uh, this this industry recruiting, and at that time I was working at a company called Untapped. So that company was acquired in early 2020, and yeah, now we're on to so yeah this new company Nebula. The the co founders are myself, um, the CEO of Untapped, uh, or the the founder of Untapped at Donner. Um, he's uh, the CTO at this new company Nebula, and then we've got the, uh, the CEO of the holding company that bought us back in 2020. He's our CEO, um, here at Nebula. So we've got this great team. We're able to use the intellectual property from untapped days. So kind of like eight years of continuous intellectual property development into the AI algorithms that are behind this new Nebula platform.
0: When you were on the show when it was September, 2019, which feels like not long ago and a uh, hundred years ago, all at all at the same, all at the same time. Um, you gave us a kind of a brilliant walkthrough of of machine learning and data science and deep learning and AI, which was so good people still listen to it now. So I was with everything that's gone on in the AI space, I was keen to have you sort of back on the show to almost give us an update in terms of, of what's happened. So talk us through what's happened in AI over the last sort of two or three years to, to get us to where we are now, which is kind of, I describe it as, as, as maximum hype.
1: Yeah, so for a long time, I think it was fair to say that the AI hype was bigger than the impact that it was making. And in the last year, really, that has changed. And I think for the first time, the hype is matching the reality With artificial intelligence, the key thing here it it builds upon deep learning. So, in 2019, we were talking about deep learning. So, deep learning is this approach to machine learning, and I guess we need to be. It's probably helpful to be clear on all these terms. So, artificial intelligence is a very broad term. It's really a buzzword. The goalposts on what people refer to as AI can change over time, but. In kind of generally speaking, AI is this idea of uh, machines being able to replicate kind of human-like intellectual capacities. So, starting in the 1990s, the the leading approach to artificial intelligence was this system called expert systems. And so, expert systems were like IBM's Deep Blue, which defeated. Uh, gary kasparov at the time the world's best chess player at chess and so that kind of expert system all of its intelligence quote-unquote intelligence was hard-coded by programmers so computer programmers at ibm worked with uh, chess experts to figure out okay you know in this kind of scenario what's the best kind of thing that the machine could be doing and so yeah so you you write into your code explicitly how the machine should behave in particular circumstances. Machine learning is an alternative approach to AI where we do not explicitly hard code the behavior. Instead, we rely on training data. And so, a great example of this to kind of keep going with the, the game playing analogies is um, more recently, um, there's, this, there's a game called Go, which is actually the world's most popular board game. Um, so, chess is the most popular board game in the West, but if you include the, the entire globe, Go is the most popular game. And Go involves placing white. So, there's a, uh, one player has white stones, another player has black stones, and you just place these stones on a grid, and you try to um, you try to have your stones completely capture, like to, to create kind of boundaries around your opponent's stones. And anytime you do that, you capture their stones. And so you gradually, you take over more and more and more of the board. And while that might sound like a simple premise, the computational complexity of that kind of game, the possible number of moves in the game is, you know, there's, there's more possible board positions than there are atoms in the universe. So it's like this there's a tremendous amount of complexity in what can be done on the board, and um, and so it doesn't it doesn't fit well into being like okay, here are the rules to to winning like you can in chess. Instead, there's this the best players kind of play by intuition. There are some strategies to learn, but. There's this kind of intuitive intelligence involved. And so people thought that it would be decades before we had machines that could develop this kind of intuition and be human experts at Go. But a few years ago, uh, researchers at a group called Google DeepMind in London created this algorithm called AlphaGo instead of the 1990s expert systems, IBM Deep Blue approach where everything's hard coded with AlphaGo you're relying on training data. So initially they were using training data from human games of Go. And so you just record all the positions and the algorithm learns over time. It develops a quote unquote intuition around how to play without you needing to explicitly program the algorithm uh, to do it. And this AlphaGo algorithm ended up beating the world's best Go player. Um, And there's a great, film documentary film that was created about this people can get it on YouTube for free and it's just called AlphaGo and it, it has like 98% on Rotten Tomatoes it's a fascinating kind of focus on the humans behind this but all of this is to say that um the modern AI approaches rely on this machine learning approach which uses training data instead of explicitly programming um Instead of explicitly hardcoding things, I've been speaking for a long time. So, Matt, if you if you want to interject or anything,
0: (laughs) I'm just going to interject to say that um, I was actually lucky enough to go to DeepMind's office a few years ago, and um, they actually had the Go board. They got the Go board in a in a glass in a glass case. So, I've actually seen um, actually seen it. So, uh, yes, there we are. That's my that's my intelligent my (laughs) intelligent interjection. Um, But no, carry on. Sort of talk us through how we got to where where we are now.
1: So that's AI and machine learning. So now we kind of have an understanding of those terms. So AI is kind of this broad generalization of machines being able to in some way replicate like you know intellectual capabilities. Machine learning is a way of doing it where we're using training data to get that result. And machine learning is definitely, it's the most prominent way for data scientists to be doing AI today. It turns out that if you have high quality training data and you pick the right kind of machine learning uh, model as the starting point, It's way more effective than any other kind of AI approach today um, at being able to recapitulate the the best things that humans do and even overtake us on a lot of tasks um, as we're seeing more and more and more. Now, the particular machine learning approach that has been driving Uh, the field over the last decade is deep learning. So we talked about this a lot. You know, listeners can go back to the episode that I'm on of Recruiting Future in 2019 to hear a lot about deep learning. But at a high level, deep learning, it was devised originally in the 1950s as this way of um, simulating the way that biological brain cells work. And it's a very, very loose approach approximation of just kind of some of the kind of functionality of the brain. Um, I think we probably talked about this in 2019. And if listeners want chapter one of my book, Deep Learning Illustrated, kind of explains uh, these relationships in more detail. But for for the purposes of this podcast today, let's just say that deep learning is this way of loosely mimicking the way uh, biological brain cells work. And so we're still training... Deep learning is a machine learning approach, so we're still training from data, but this deep learning approach, it allows the algorithm to automatically develop many layers of sophistication. So the first layer of processing in this deep learning network will do very relatively simple um, processing, then a second layer can take that first layer of information and do kind of abstractions and derivatives of that information. And then you can have a third layer that's increasingly complex, increasingly abstract, until you have potentially dozens or even hundreds of layers that allow increasing complexity, increasing abstraction um, to be represented by the machine. And so this is what has allowed, um, say, like uh, the voice detection on your phone to become in the last few years very high quality, or the face detection on your phone to become very reliable. And so those kinds of things are facilitated by deep learning. So this kind of this nuanced these, these nuanced capabilities um, in machine learning have been, have been brought about by deep learning. Now, what's happened in the last couple of years is the development of this specific deep learning architecture. So, you know, the way I kind of just described all these layers, well. That's up to the programmer, the data scientist or the machine learning engineer to configure what the deep learning network architecture is like. How does information flow through it generally? And so um, a few years ago, researchers came up with this uh, deep learning architecture called a transformer. And it's this transformer that it turns out to be extremely good at attending to the most relevant parts of the information that it's trained on. So, as an example, um, prior to transformers, the kind of leading deep learning architectures, when you fed them a sentence of information or a paragraph of information, they couldn't retain very much context from that. They couldn't. They could only kind of keep track of a few key words or a few key phrases. But this transformer architecture. It's able to attend over long stretches, so it can pull out the relevant parts of an entire document. And you know, so if you if you feed in, and probably lots of your listeners have had this experience with an interface like ChatGPT, when you when you provide a, you could provide a very large document. You could say, "Here's the entire transcript to uh, a recruiting future podcast episode." Um, you know, I have a few questions about this transcript and then you can, and then the, the chat GPT might ask, okay, you know, I've, I've got the document. What are your questions? And then you could ask questions about the document and it can summarize parts. It can quickly jump. So that ability to attend to the most important parts of the document and say, answer your questions that is facilitated by this transformer architecture. And so, ChatGPT runs on top of, today, you have the choice between GPT 3.5 in the back end or GPT 4 in the back end. But whichever one of those you're using, the GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. Ah, okay, interesting. That's what that means, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, generative means that it generates text. So as you've had the experience when you're using ChatGPT, it just, it prints out what are called um, subword tokens one by one. It generates these subword tokens, which often are, you know, for common words, that'll be the whole word. So you can kind of, you can do a, um, uh, like a screen recording of ChatGPT as it's printing out, and then you can play it back for yourself frame by frame, and you'll see these subwords pop out. Um, so um, so a very long word like consecrate might be broken up into one subword consec and then another subword rate. And so these kind of these subword tokens are the uh, the kind of the smallest atom of what these generative large language models print out. And uh, yeah, so, th- so the generative part of GPT just means that it's generating these subword tokens one by one and it prints them out as quickly as they can. And they're doing all kinds of, you know, the people at OpenAI who built uh, this GPT algorithm, the engineers there are constantly coming up with ways that they can print out the subwords faster and faster and faster to get the results to you faster. Um, so that's the generative part. The pre-trained part means that the algorithm is pre-trained on basically all of the high quality information that can be found on the internet, which allows it to perform well on essentially any task that you can imagine. So it's, it's pre-trained in the sense that you, you don't need to train it to some specific task that you'd like to perform at, whatever thing comes to mind for you, this generative pre-trained transformer is going to be able to, to take a crack at it, Um, and then yeah, the T, the transformer is this thing that I've been talking about. It's the specific deep learning architecture. And uh yeah, so that's this has been the big these these transformer architectures, like the GPT architectures, they they've taken that concept, the transformer thing that I've been that I've been describing a few minutes ago, and they've just scaled it up. So they've taken they do it dozens of times. They have dozens of these transformers in a given architecture like GPT 3.5 or GPT four. There's dozens of these transformers and this allows the whole, the architecture as a whole to be able to attend to lots of different parts of whatever uh, natural language you've been provided to it as, as an input so that it can have a uncannily human-like uh, intellectual response. And yeah, that for me, uh it's been a, a mind-boggling journey uh particularly <laughs> yeah the jump from gpt 3.5 to gpt 4 for me was a huge it's uh almost like a it was a life-changing event um because say a year ago i gave a a tedx talk uh in philadelphia and in that tedx talk the whole point of it was that i was framing how quickly technology is changing in our lifetimes. And because of how rapidly that change is happening, particularly thanks to augmenting human intelligence with artificial intelligence, we are, we're at this point in history where technological progress is happening so, so, so rapidly. It's very difficult to predict what the world is going to be like a decade from now or or even a year from now. And if someone had asked me in spring of 2022, when I gave that talk in Philadelphia, if you had asked me. Whether in our lifetimes, we would have a machine that can do the things that GPT-4 does, I might have said that's a stretch. I, I, I yeah, it's it's blown my mind when it came out in March. Um, yeah, it's 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 a real game changer, and I think it goes to show that it really might be possible in our lifetimes that we will achieve uh, something called artificial general intelligence, which is. Uh, a machine that is that is more intelligent than humans uh, on you know is capable of replicating human intelligence on any conceivable task.
0: I'll come back and ask you about that again a little bit later in the conversation. But there's just a, a couple of kind of areas I want to cover first. The first one is what the landscape looks like here because I think that there is a tendency in our industry to think that Chat GPT is it. Is in terms of the only the only game in town, but there are there are lots of other large language models, aren't there, being developed?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. So um, another one of the big players in this space is a company called Anthropic. Um, so they have a, a model called Claude, um, like the French name Claude, and you can use Claude for free today, uh, just like you can use uh, GPT three point five and the Chat GPT interface for free today. Um, an interesting thing about Claude is that the latest version has what we call a context window of, I believe at time of recording, the context window is a hundred thousand of these subword tokens. So uh, you know, I was describing those subword tokens earlier. So for short words, you know, it it often ends up the token ends up being the whole word. So words like the and at and from, those will all just be one of these tokens. A longer word, like I said, consecrate, that might end up being broken up into two subword tokens. But uh yeah. So in general, so this idea of this this context window of a hundred thousand tokens that Claude has, it means that you have almost like a hundred thousand words, or something like eighty thousand words uh, that can be handled by the algorithm, and that's a lot of pages. That's like it's like a hundred pages, kind of uh, roughly that that kind of rough order of magnitude of context that you can provide to Claude. So potentially a very powerful option for people to work with, especially if they have longer documents that you want to be doing, um, these kind of these AI tasks with. So, yeah, so that's one. Uh, and then another really big lab out there for this is cohere, which is based in Toronto. Um, and they're kind of focusing more on commercial applications of these, but they're also those kind of three labs: OpenAI, Anthropic, and Cohere are, are often touted as the as the leaders. But of course, companies like Google uh, cannot be uh, forgotten about. They, you know, they got some flack, and their their share price took a bit of a beating earlier in twenty twenty three because it was perceived. That OpenAI with uh, GPT four had taken this big leap beyond them, and that you know Microsoft by taking that forty nine percent investment in OpenAI was going to be uh, you know launching ahead of Google with you know search technology and that kind of thing. But <laughs> I don't I don't know anybody that's using Bing today. <laughs> uh, you know everyone's still using Google searches, and and it turns out that Google behind the scenes um, they. They did have comparable kinds of models, Uh, maybe not quite GPT-4 level, but getting close to that level, they they hadn't released them because they were worried about ethical issues and probably they were worried about eating their own lunch a little where, you know, if you can ask a chatbot and get the answer right away, what's the point in searching over a bunch of different articles and being served ads on Google while you do that, so Anyway, yeah, so those are kind of the, that's a tour, I'd say, of the main players. There's lots of people getting involved in this, but uh, those are kind of the big commercial players.
0: Hi, it's Matt, and we will be back to the interview very shortly. Is your career future-proof? Can anyone's career be future-proof? These are interesting questions in talent acquisition at the moment. In several decades of working in this industry, I've never seen a time of greater disruption and change. And we really are still only at the beginning. With technology advancing as quickly as it is now, there's a tendency to believe that we have no control over the future. This is wrong. And I passionately believe that this is the precise time when we should be inventing the future. I want to see talent acquisition thrive. And I want recruiting to be transformational in getting everyone into the right job for them with the right skills at the right time. So, I've built a course to help and it's called Trend Spotting is an on-demand digital course that examines the forces driving change and assesses the emerging trends in talent acquisition. It also teaches a simple but robust model to help you understand, plan for, influence and invent the future. Spotting is for everyone in talent acquisition. It will help you future-proof your career, create future-focused talent acquisition strategies and build your influence within your business. I've split trend spotting into nine short lessons to easily fit into the flow of your busy day. The feedback from the TA leaders who've taken the course so far has been amazing, and I know you'll find it will really help you future-proof your career. You can find out more by going to mattalder.me course. That's mattalder.me course. So, there's obviously been huge amounts of discussion about how this can be applied to recruiting and talent acquisition. Lots of people doing their own experiments with, uh, you know, with ChatGTP and, and Bard and, and, and everything else. Um, lots of vendors trying to bake it into their systems. Now, you're the perfect person <laughs> to, to ask this because you're obviously a practitioner in the space, but you're also building a recruitment project product. So, What are the immediate kind of implications for recruiting and talent acquisition when it comes to
1: uh, this new technology? So there's kind of there's two approaches to doing this. So um, our tool, Nebula, it has a lot of generative AI functionality already in production available today. People can create a free account and try it out. We're still like we're at the time of recording, we're like just kind of going into a public beta. Uh, We're not marketing it yet. So this is potentially one of the first places you're ever hearing about it. Um, But we have functionality built in, like when you think of somebody, a, a role that you need to fill, you probably instantly have an idea of the job title and a handful of the key skills that you're looking for. You can throw those into our platform and we will create a full-length job description for you that's, you know, a page long and has all these sections that you'd expect. And our algorithm will attempt to fill in the gaps. Uh, you know, it'll take guesses at, you know, so if I say that I need to hire a director of data science uh, and, you know, I'm looking for this person to have generative AI skills, then the, the job description that's automatically generated by our platform might assume things like the kinds of programming languages that we'd expect the person to have and the kinds of uh, methodological approaches that we'd expect the person to have. And it does a a tremendously good job of it. And you could go to a tool like GPT-4 and get comparable kinds of results for a task like that. So I'm trying to give an example of how, you know, we want to have this generative AI functionality in our platform. And so... Uh, so, you know, if you yourself as a listener are thinking about, you know, you know, you have whatever recruitment platform, Azure tech platform or whatever, and you want to build some kind of generative AI functionality into it, one route that you can go down with your development team is using a proprietary model like um, the open AI APIs. Um, so the same chat GPT is this friendly user interface that you can just type in. Uh, and have very uh, you know natural reactions with uh, natural interactions with, but uh, a software developer or a data scientist would be able to call OpenAI's API. So API stands for Application Programming Interface, and basically that's like the the code equivalent of a user interface. So with a user interface, you know you might click and point, or you might uh, type to you you might type into a into a box. With an application programming interface, you're writing computer code that gets sent to uh, you know to somebody. In this case, to OpenAI, and then uh, OpenAI returns to you the response, um, also in code. Uh, but then, you know, within that code is included the natural language response. In this case, from ChatGPT, so or, or from GPT four. So these these APIs allow these commercial APIs from providers like OpenAI allow you to uh, experiment with what could be possible in your platform with a generative AI function. So that job description builder functionality, for example, when we wanted to, when we had the idea to create that product feature, our product team, not our data science team, our product team just went to chat GPT, switched it over to GPT-4 and experimented with, okay, if I provide a job title and some skills, how good of a job does the out does ChatGPT, does GPT4 do at creating a response that that I'm kind of looking for? And, and they kind of, in that way, they figured out how to engineer the right kind of prompt and provide it with the right kind of information to get the result that they were hoping for. And so anybody in your company now can, you know, has this power to use a tool like ChatGPT to experiment. With some kind of potential generative AI capability in your platform, and uh, and, uh, but then from there, there's you know, so one one thing you could do is you could just use as I described your your data science team or your software development team could use the OpenAI APIs, and they could uh, very quickly, you know, in in a matter of hours, um, stand up the ability to be to have that kind of job description builder uh, functionality that I just described as an example in your platform. But uh, the other key route to go down, which we've gone down with Nebula, is to have your own proprietary large language model. Um, So your own proprietary uh, transformer architecture, like GPT-like architecture running. And so for this, at the time of recording, my recommendation for your listeners would be to check out um, a model called Llama 2 by Meta. So Meta, formerly known as Facebook – uh they have made themselves a big player in the open source large language model space so they people estimate that they invested 25 million dollars in the creation of this llama2 architecture which is trained on 2 trillion of these tokens these kinds of subword tokens um which is a huge amount um the Llama the 2 family comes in different sizes. So you've got a 7 billion parameter model, a 13 billion parameter model, and a 70 billion parameter model. And to give you a sense of this kind of scale, uh, GPT 3.5 was 180 billion parameters. Um, so even the biggest Llama model is, uh, it's it's less than half the size of that. That's 70 billion. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the number of parameters is not the only thing that makes a, a large language model uh, great at, at natural conversation. It turns out that it, in addition to parameter size, um, having a large amount of data uh, is is hugely important to in training time. So you kind of have these three factors. You have model size, uh, amount of high quality training data and training time. And those are kind of your three parameters for working with. And so uh, it, So with something like this Llama 2, this open source large language model that you can get for free from Meta, um, they've gone a little bit smaller on the parameter size, but they have this huge training data set and they've trained it, they've pre-trained it for a very long time. So you can take one of these off-the-shelf Llama 2 models, the 70 billion parameter model, that's going to give you the -the state-of-the-art performance for an open source large language model. it approaches GPT4 capabilities on a wide range of tasks. Um, or you could use one of the smaller ones. you could use the 7 billion one or the 13 billion parameter one and you you might want to do that because the they still have great results um, but you can fit them on a single uh, GPU, a single graphics processing unit. So this means that the cost of uh, running them in, on your production infrastructure is going to be relatively small. Um, and, and relatively cost-effective. Indeed, if you can use Llama 2, like the 7 billion parameter Llama 2 model for your generative AI task for your platform, then your, your costs are going to be a fraction of what it would be to be calling the GPT-4 API from OpenAI, or maybe even their GPT-3.5 API. So you potentially have these cost savings. You then have control on your own infrastructure of uh, how fast you want it to run, like how much money you're willing to spend on having it run performantly. You just you have way more control. And you can do fine-tuning. So while these uh, open-source large-language models like Llama 2 come pre-trained and are very effective on a broad range of tasks, um, data scientists can fine-tune the model. So um, there are approaches um, like... Uh, So they're called parameter efficient fine training um, approaches. And so the most uh, famous of these is Lora, L O R A, which stands for low rank adaptation. And what this allows you to do is it allows you to take a very small amount of training. So going back to that job description builder uh, example that I was providing earlier, you can have just a few hundred or maybe a few thousand examples of um, you know, your, your, your prompts, like, uh, a job title and a few skills being converted into a full job description. You, you just need a few hundred or a few thousand of those examples. And you can use this parameter efficient fine tuning on an open source, large language model like llama two. And um, you can, you can make it an expert at doing that particular kind of task. And so you could have it, your data science team would you know it's a matter of carefully crafting your training data but with a relatively small amount of training data and very cheap you know we're talking like hours of training time we're talking about tens of dollars maybe hundreds of dollars of training time you can take one of these off the off the shelf open source large language models and fine-tune them to be expert at one or more uh generative ai tasks that you'd like to have in your platform
0: i mean i think that's fascinating to learn because what that says to to me is the speed of innovation, uh, you know, in our sector or in all sectors is just going to go a million miles an hour, isn't it? If it's that easy to harness and and train this technology, then, um, you know, we've got some pretty interesting times ahead for
1: uh, recruiting technology, I guess. A hundred percent. So, You know, I'm only willing to kind of disclose on air the kinds of functionality like that job description builder that we already have built into the product, but we have a tremendous amount of uh, functionality, generative AI functionality that is coming in the coming months in production in our Nebula platform. And all of it will be transformative for a recruiter or for a hiring manager to be able to do their job in a fraction of the time, uh, that they, that previously, so, you know, that job description builder example alone, if I, you know, I've built, I've written job descriptions myself and the good ones that I've made take me a day or more, uh, you know, working full time, you know, to spend eight hours to create a two or three page job description, And to make sure that it includes everything that I want to, it's a really, you know, it's a huge piece of work. And it's often an iterative one where I, you know, say to other people on my team, like, am I missing anything here? Uh, And, you know, they often have ideas of things that need to go in. And so creating a really great job description is this hugely labor intensive process. And now through this kinds of this kind of JD builder tool that you can get in Nebula, it's seconds instead of a day or so. From you know, at least to have that first draft. Which yes, to make it excellent, you should probably you know you're probably going to want to prune some things or add some other things in. But it's you know we're we're talking like a ninety percent kind of area of reduction in the time to create a job description. And our yeah our Nebula platform, we're chipping away at more and more of these kinds of examples of tasks creating your shortlist of people to reach out to. That's something that actually for years, we've had the kind of of technology to do um, that uses natural language as opposed to keywords. And we know that we get, we find about 10 times more of the most relevant people for a given job because we're understanding the natural language that you're looking for as opposed to doing a keyword search, which all of the incumbent platforms use. Um, And so those keyword searches, because they're so rigid, you end up missing on a huge amount of relevant people, um, yeah, we had a a, a giant microchip company um, in our was a client of ours in our previous company, Untapped, and they did an internal study, and that's where I'm getting this this 10x multiple. They were finding 10 times more of the best candidates using our natural language understanding algorithm as opposed to a keyword based search. So so there's generative AI examples as long as as, as long as well as other non generative AI examples like this matching example that I just gave. That means that the recruiting job, the HR professional's job is going to become much more efficient than ever before and if you do not embrace these tools... You will be left behind by your competitors.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's um, it's kind of interesting as well because you know there was obviously a huge amount of hype earlier in the year about rapid progress and all this sort of stuff, and then, um, you know that's dissipated slightly as people kind of get to grips with the tools, but it's very much the um the reality is 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 very much still there. And I, and I suppose that leads me on to my impossible final question, <laughs> which is um, impossible based on uh, what you were what you were saying earlier where where is all this taking us i mean obviously you know the 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 fact that we kind of sat and tried to predict the future in um september 2019 and missed the fact there was going to be a global pandemic kind of indicates that um you know, predicting the future is not an exact science but where where might this go you you mentioned um um you know the the sort of potential that ai could get to in our lifetime where, where is it where could it take us in the next few years
1: yeah so it's going to be a ride. It's going to be, it's going to be a ride for sure. Um, things are moving so rapidly. To give you a sense, people at OpenAI that were working on, say, GPT-3 or, or GPT-4, when those models came out, they did not themselves anticipate the tremendous breadth of capabilities and the accuracy within those capabilities that GPT-3 and then GPT-4 would have. And so across domains, not just in you know these kind of generative AI you know these text to text generative AI applications like GPT3 and GPT4, but in, in all kinds of AI, whether it's recognition or image generation, video generation, the strides being made are extraordinary and yes, it makes predicting the future very difficult. but uh, one thing that is a safe bet is that, Across all of these domains in the coming years, we are going to continue to see staggering improvements. Um, And so it means that as a professional, we need to be looking out for ways that we can be adopting these tools and integrating them into our workflows as quickly as we can. And it's conceivable, you know, looking beyond a few years, it's conceivable that in our lifetimes, these machine systems will become so much more capable than humans at making processes efficient, at allocating resources effectively, that we may just trust machines to do that. And particularly if we can also crack things, perhaps with the assistance of AI, things like uh, nuclear fusion energy, we could in our lifetimes be in a... Yeah, like, I mean, for lack of a better word, like a utopia where, you know, across uh, people's, you know, ability to access education, ability to ensure that across the world we have access to high quality nutrition, uh, ensuring that, you know, there's no violent crime or war. Um, All of these things are attainable in our lifetimes. Um, But there's also a camp that is really concerned about. AGI, um, artificial general intelligence. So, um, so this, this same kind of technology that could lead to a utopia could also lead to a dystopia or potentially an extinction event, uh, for, uh, life on this planet, including humans. Um, so, yeah, so, <laughs> yes.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, well my, my mind is, is um, officially blown. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your kind of incredible knowledge and insights there. Thank you very much for joining me.
1: Yeah, my pleasure, Matt. Good luck. If uh, the machine overlords haven't taken over by then, then uh, maybe in a few years we can catch up again on how the recruiting future is coming along. Absolutely.
0: My thanks to John. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or via your podcasting app of choice. Please also follow the show on Instagram. You can find us by searching for Recruiting Future. You can search all the past episodes at RecruitingFuture.com. On that site, you can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter, Recruiting Future Feast, and get the inside track about everything that's coming up on the show. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back next time and I hope you'll join me.
1: This is my show.